morning and welcome to Rising. We have another terrific show for you today. It's a warm day in the nation's capital. It um, is. It's gorgeous. Get any fresh, fresh air this morning? I thought about walking to work. <laughs> is that enough? Does that count? <laughs> I did. Uh, I took a scooter today for nice. the first time in months. It was very enjoyable. Nice. Well, I look forward to my walk home. But first, we've got some news for you on the 2024 election front. New Harvard-Harris polling finds former President Trump taking a decisive lead over President Biden in a hypothetical general election matchup. When asked if they would vote for Biden or Trump, should Trump be found guilty of inciting the January 6th Capitol riots, 54% of voters still said they would vote for Trump. Now add Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to the mix, and Trump's lead over Biden grows to seven points, and Kennedy takes a massive 18% chunk of support away from the top two candidates. Among younger voters, Biden maintains just a four-point lead, according to a new Axios survey. That's compared to the 20-point advantage he had with the under-35 uh, set in 2020. Mm. Donald Trump may soon receive the coveted endorsement of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Trump and McConnell's teams are in talks, according to reporting in The Hill. Meanwhile, both Trump and Biden will head to the U.S.-Mexico border on Thursday this week amidst debates on the Hill on, over how to fund customs and border protection. A new Monmouth University poll finding that 53 percent of voters support building a border wall, which the polling center says is the first time a majority of respondents supported the proposal since it started asking the question in 2015. Hmm. Yeah, so the fact that... Joe Biden can no longer rely on overwhelming support for young voters is, I think, an underappreciated story. It's one thing for there to be an expectation that, let's say, a generic Republican has about 50 percent of the youth vote, which even that hasn't been the case since I can remember. But Trump in particular has always been characterized as someone that is so out of touch on a lot of cultural issues that, frankly, younger people who have gay friends and live in a very different cultural world than older generations would never accept. And when you look back to 2016 and 2020 and how the politics around immigration were really core to claims that Donald Trump was a racist, the way that the Mexico isn't sending their best became a statement that was a stand-in for his broader uh, attitudes toward diversity. It's really, yeah. frankly, blowing my mind that he has managed to close the gap with young voters with Joe Biden. Well, I'm not sure. Maybe the media tried to convince people of this, but I'm not sure most people ever actually did believe, I, I don't believe, that he genuinely harbors animus for LGBT people. Um, you know, he said Caitlyn Jenner can use whatever bathroom she wants. He said, I, we, I think he called LGBT people precious when he was like hugging the flag or something. Um, the, the more credible, obvious accusations against him from the media perspective is the remarks he's made about, you know, SHIT countries and they're not sending their best. It was along racist, racial and immigration lines. Um, uh, you know, on the abortion question, he's proving to be a moderating force in the whole Republican coalition. Well, let's not over as he, overstate that. As he urges them not to do a national abortion ban. I think we shouldn't overstate that. I think that he claims credit and deserves credit for appointing the Supreme Court justices that overturned Roe. What he has that other Republicans don't is the sense to understand that it's the kind of political issue that shouldn't be foregrounded in the context of an election cycle. Yeah. That's what he should get credit for. Yeah. I mean, the fact is, he is a 
temperamentally extreme person. He says a lot of things. He's a, he's a performer. He's a character. He behaves in a way that is outside the general norm. But his policies, with some exceptions, are not actually all that out of the ordinary. Um, in, certainly his cultural policies or views are not all that out of the ordinary. His foreign policy is, you know, it changes depending on what day it is. And his economic policies are, frankly, pretty standard Republican, um, maybe to the, to the disappointment of, of some in the more populist right side who thought they were getting different policies when they um, supported him. All of that is to say that he's clearly not scaring off, you know, the, the idea that he was just going to scare off some massive category of voters is not necessarily holding true, while at the same time he has lost, you know, suburban, affluent, white women as a, as a category of people he's struggling to lure back to support him in his reelection efforts. It is worth noting that the New York Times reported about 10 days ago that Trump has been privately expressing a support for a 16-week abortion ban, which is not popular. Uh, apparently, it's in an effort to shore up support among uh, social conservatives who... It's not popular with who? With social conservatives? No, it is popular with social conservatives. He's trying to shore up support with them by talking privately about a 16-week abor abortion ban. But again, the, the insight that Trump seems to have is to understand that there needs to be private conversations. What, what did Hillary Clinton call it? In, mm -hmm. in, you know, inside conversations versus public uh, conversations. And so I do think perhaps as we get closer to the election, Democrats do seem to have a sense that this is a really motivating issue for voters. And if it becomes clear that, you know, by, that, that, that Trump has those kinds of policies, could enact those kinds of policies and support them, as he's increasingly forced to have not just the friendly interviews he's been willing to take, but to submit to these kinds of questions and debates, I do wonder if younger voters will realize who he, what he really stands for again. YouGov finds that 48 percent of people would support a 16-week ban 36% oppose and 16% are not sure. So not the, not wildly popular, but honestly kind of mixed. I don't know. Um, just because that's, I mean, that's in keeping with what France has, what a 14-week ban, I think. England as well. It's it's not that's not that's not a very extreme well, policy okay, by the then you, you just, I hope he shouts it from of, the rooftops that uh, Donald Trump supports a 16-week abortion ban. I guess we'll find out how people feel about it. More rising right after this. Disturbing updates from the Middle East as Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu has revealed the total control he hopes to be willed after over most aspects of life for Palestinians following the end of the war in Gaza. Per the AP, Netanyahu's plan calls for freedom of action for Israel's military across a demilitarized Gaza after the war to thwart any security threat. It says Israel would establish a buffer zone inside Gaza, which is likely to provoke U.S. objections. The plan also envisions Gaza being governed by local officials who it says would, quote, not be identified with countries or entities that support terrorism and will not receive payment from them. The plan comes as Israel is ongoing in negotiations with Arab neighbors, proxying for Hamas over plans to release hostages taken on October 7th before a planned Israeli invasion of the southern city of Rafah. Several news sources reported that the more than 1.4 million refugees in Rafah will be allowed to relocate elsewhere before the invasion, but that Netanyahu appears to be adamant in executing the uh, assault on the city. 
Meanwhile, back at home, a State Department press conference devolved into laughter as department spokesman Matthew Miller received some pushback over whether America can dictate terms to Israel over its actions in Gaza. One reporter quipped, the U.S. won't tell any country what to do unless we invade them. Let's watch. You have so much leverage over the Israelis, and this is fundamental vision of the president. So you can use all the revenge you want, including weapons that you sell to Israel, to so, make sure that this plan is on the, at least on the right path for implementation, considering we have like short time between now and November. So one thing I will say about that that people often tend to forget is that Israel, like other countries in the region, is a sovereign country that makes its own decisions. The United States does not dictate to Israel what it must do, just as we don't dictate to any country what it must do. We present what we believe are the, we present what the, we believe are the, <laughs> good one, Matt. We, we present, no, I mean, come, but, but come on, yeah. It's, we, we present stand-up hour at the, in the briefing room. Meanwhile, President Biden, while out on a trip for some ice cream, took a question from the crowd on a potential ceasefire, and here's what he had to say. Can you give us a sense of when you think that ceasefire will start? Well, I hope by the, the beginning of the weekend. I mean, the end of the weekend. At least my, my, my national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire. So that was some news. There's a lot of news there. So with respect to the first part of this, uh, Netanyahu stating, as he stated before, that he plans to have a buffer zone inside of Gaza, something the United States has already said that they do not support, and adding to that belief that there will be no self-governance of Palestinians, for all the discussion of the Israeli right to self-determination, it seems pretty clear that the Israeli government does not feel like those same uh, that say those same rights extend to the people of Palestine, basically describing some sort of pr protectorate under which Palestinians live in Gaza for the foreseeable future. With respect to the population in Rafah, remember there were two, about 2.3 uh, Palestinians in Gaza to begin with. About 1.4 have been now pushed down to the southern city, told that that was the last safe place for them to go as the evacuation efforts pushed them farther and farther and farther down. Now uh, Netanyahu is, has announced and is planning a ground invasion of Rafah with the expectation of an incredibly high death toll. He's saying now that they will be allowed to be moved elsewhere. The concern is that the elsewhere is out of Gaza entirely. And given that earlier this month, it was reported that Egypt is building a wall, uh, a containment wall of some kind, uh, at Rafah on their side of the border, it seems to strongly suggest that a kind of ethnic cleansing campaign is afoot to push Gazans out of the territory. And if that happens, there's some really serious questions about if and when they will be allowed to return to their homes. Mm. Oh, and then we again heard from a White House spokesperson that we are powerless right. to wield any um, persuasion over Israel, despite having given them hundreds of millions and billions of dollars over the years. We are powerless to do anything, which, of course, is not even literally true, because past U.S. administrations, including the Reagan administration, um, did exercise some pressure over Israel to change course when we thought they were endangering, endangering Americans' lives, American national security. We didn't think an open-ended, open giving them total license to have World War III in the Middle East was good for us, and so we reined them in periodically. That doesn't happen anymore under 
President Biden, it doesn't happen. Yeah, the question was a very good and pointed one, specifically about the question of leverage. She used the word leverage and basically was asking, why is it that we aren't using the fact that we provide uh, Israel with unprecedented amounts of aid in normal circumstances, much less these huge multi-billion dollar aid packages that uh, Democrats and establishment Republicans are agitating for in the moment, or the provision of weapons um, and military aid to say, you have to follow our rules if you want our goods. And um, you saw there the spokesperson just largely laughed it off, so much so that someone else, another reporter in the crowd said, in response to him saying, in case you didn't catch it, what, the, what they were laughing at was another reporter saying, unless we invade them in response to his claim that we don't have leverage over people, they're autonomous, they can self-govern, oh, unless we invade them. And everyone's laughing, but it's a really dark, sadistic kind of laughter. We all know the extent to which the lengths America will go to to exert its political will all across the world. And it is, it is frankly, laughable, but not funny. Yeah. Laughable, but not funny, that a, a State Department spokesperson would sit there and pretend to be uh, impotent in America's ability to exert its political will across the globe. Mm. And now Biden signaling that perhaps a ceasefire uh, deal might be uh, back on the table. It sounded like a, a temporary ceasefire, a pausing of violence in order to um, rescue, release more hostages, do a kind of hostage exchange. No a permanent kind of change to the situation along the lines of what Israel has said it would accept and um, Hamas has said it would accept. So uh, nevertheless, it would be good to get even a brief window of peace um, if that results in the release of more hostages. Right. So as you know, we've discussed on this show, uh, Hamas has put forward uh, most recently a, a ceasefire deal that would result in the complete and total exchange of hostages in exchange for a permanent ceasefire. Israel has made it very clear that they don't believe they will accept any deal that results in them ceasing the siege on Gaza. And given Netanyahu's plans, which we described at the top of this read, to have a what sounds like a permanent settlement and occupation of Gaza, a permanent uh, border zone, demilitarized zone within Gaza that is occupied by Israeli soldiers, it seems obvious. Well, they've said they will not accept any deal that leaves Hamas or a similar terrorist group in control of Gaza, they've said. Right. But as we know from history, they called the PLO a terrorist group. They called every uh, Palestinian group that is agitating for Palestinian self-determination a, a terrorist group, which is exactly why they uh, paid money to Hamas to prop up Hamas to be able to make exactly these kinds of arguments more convincingly than they could with more um, moderate political groups in, in control. And now what they're saying is that no Palestinian can control Palestine. They're saying there is basically going to be an international uh, uh, cabal of, of other international actors and players that get to determine the rights and interests of the people of Palestine. Remember what this place is. They replace a, a, a community of people that is not allowed to have an airport, not allowed to have a standing military. For all of the articulation of Israel's rights as a country to self-defense, it should really be underscored the extent to which Palestinians are denied the acknowledgement that they are even a country, largely because of America's vetoing and stepping in and interceding on behalf of Israel in the United Nations. The rest of the world wants to recognize Palestine in a way that the UN cannot because of America's veto. So this is an extension of that kind of policy and approach that Israel in the United States have had to Palestine um, for decades now. And for Biden then to be 
um, kind of cavalierly. I mean, the, the optics of this are very bad, and he has gotten a lot of pushback for this in the last you know, few hours since it happened. But the, the, the optics of him casually eating ice cream when what has been described as a plausible genocide is occurring in in Gaza, and saying that, sure, uh, we might, we're hoping for a ceasefire soon, using that very charged language and knowing that there's no anticipated, no contemplated permanent ceasefire that would end the immiseration of Palestinians that's resulting in people now starving to death in Gaza, it's, it's a difficult situation. Well, yeah, it is a very difficult situation because Hamas leadership of the area is not good for the people of Palestine either. And I mean, we wouldn't from a from a human rights perspective, from the Palestinian rights perspective, we wouldn't want to recognize or entrench Hamas control over that the region, right? So you think that the United States and Israel should be in charge of picking the political leadership of another country? But the Palestinians don't have the right to choose their leadership under Hamas. Palestinians don't have a right to choose their leadership. They voted for Hamas well, 17 20, years ago. Yeah, right, they haven't. But it, it did happen. Well, okay, in a, so what you're in a democracy, now, you tend you we we usually allow people to pick new leaders once every 17 years, I think? Well, wait, the, the argument here isn't that we should hold free and fair elections and Palestinians should elect leadership. What Israel is saying is that we are picking your leadership and we are not going to elect you to allow you to self-govern. Is that acceptable to Hamas to hold free and fair elections? Are they willing to do I that? I don't know, but I know that it's not the business of another so. country. It's not the business of Israel or United States. It's your argument right here as we're sitting here, Robbie, that the United States should be in charge of picking who runs another government, the same way that Victoria Nuland decided that the America and the United States government decided no, that it you're should be in the United charge States has of doing duty a color to recognize in, in uh, Ukraine? You're saying we have to recognize that we should recognize them. We should recognize them as a country governed by a terrorist group that attacked Israel, and that like there's some duty to us to do that. I don't think that's the case. Yes, yeah, just like we recognize every government in, in the rest of the world, regardless of if we think they're a good. Re we recognize that Putin is the is, a, is the leader of Russia. It doesn't matter if America likes Putin or doesn't like Putin. Our job isn't to say you're not a government because you're not. You're not um, accordant with our foreign policy I, interests. We That's are, in absurd, fact, Robbie. in a position to deny that Hamas is the yes, legitimate are, government of Palestine position, and should continue to do that position, because they attacked Israel. We are in a position to do that because we have enabled Israel. We, with Israel, have imposed apartheid uh, conditions on Gaza and on Palestinians and have stripped them of their statehood and their right to have self-determination. It, it seems so, totally yes. insane to me that the solution to that is, is, is well, to say, Robbie, OK, now you're a country <laughs> governed by a terrorist group that just attacked Robbie, its neighbors. Look, if, if you don't, good luck. Have fun. Enjoy sure. that. That's it, not good for the people. They is, don't want. This I is mean, why they call it colonialism. If you don't well, want people to call it colonialism, don't say that we have a right to impose your rulers. Their rulers have imposed themselves on the Palestinians. Their rulers are are terrorist, dictator, authoritarians. Okay. So, so I, it sounds to me like we should also invade Russia. We should invade Saudi Arabia. I guess you're good about invading Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan. We shouldn't go around invading every country where we think that there isn't freedom and democracy. You're sounding very much like a 2000-era neocon, Robbie. You're act, acting like they didn't do any. Hamas attacked Israel. So this is what's happening. All right. Iraq didn't, didn't your, your, attack your, us, and we should have position, done anything. Your position is very clear. Um, but for, the, you know, okay. the, the rest of us, I mean, people who feel very the differently. The shame about Iraq and Afghanistan was that invading them made the places worse off because they ended up getting even worse leadership. And 30,000. can't get a lot worse than Hamas. And 30,000 Gazans are dead because of Israeli and American bombs. Israel and the United States of America killed 30,000 Palestinians in four months. More rising right after this.
Looks like IKEA meatballs and pickled fish will now be served in the NATO cafeteria because Sweden is the official newest member of NATO, putting the borders of the Western-aligned military bloc ever closer to Moscow. Here's the U.S. State Department's response. We certainly welcome the. Uh, we certainly do welcome the vote uh, in the um, uh, Hungarian Parliament today, and look forward to it being finalized, and are, are ready to receive the instruments here in Washington, and welcome Sweden as the uh, 32nd member of NATO. Per Politico, Sweden cleared the final hurdle to become the military alliance's 32nd member after Hungary, the last holdout among the countries, held a parliamentary vote to approve the move. Following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Sweden seemingly abandoned its position of neutrality toward NATO and applied to join. Hungary's more Kremlin-friendly government had been a holdout for over a year. Now, following Sweden and neighboring Finland's attempt to join NATO, Russia has adopted a more aggressive stance toward the countries. Moscow called Sweden, quote, a legitimate target for Russia's retaliatory measures last year. In response, the West has tightened controls on the Baltic Sea, complicating a vital transit route for the Russian Navy. That route has been complicated, but other efforts by the rest to stymie Russia in response to its ongoing invasion of Ukraine seem to have stalled. A new Politico article notes that despite a slew of economic punishments, including sanctions, frozen assets, Mother Russia chugs along. As Politico puts it, two years on, Russia's economy has rebounded, its factories are humming, its oil and gas sales are relatively strong, and its people are at work in a system retrofitted to be all about the war. Vladimir Putin, meanwhile, appears firmly in charge of the Kremlin, despite hopes that Russia's elite would turn on him as the economic pressure grew. Another Russia-related news, a series of investigations into the Nord Stream pipeline blast have seemingly come up with nothing. Denmark recently concluded its own investigation, claiming, quote, there is not sufficient grounds to pursue a criminal case in Denmark, and therefore the Copenhagen police has decided to conclude the criminal investigation of the explosions. Russia has said Denmark's findings are, quote, close to absurdity. So we're getting to a position where NATO is growing, is expanding. Um, these uh, countries joining, obviously, uh, Ukraine wants to be part of NATO as well. And I think we have to ask ourselves, what is this protective alliance for? Is it to have greater um, friction, tension with Russia, or is it to promote peace in the West. And if you think the goal is to keep the U.S. out of wars, you know, while not, while not abandoning people, of course, to be invaded, then I think you have to start wondering what we're doing here. Are we not making confrontation with Russia more likely by admitting all of its neighbors, even countries with which Russia had no conflict until this whole thing started up? Now, that's not to say that Russia get, should get whatever it wants or should be applauded for doing its illegal invasion of Ukraine, which has cost the lives of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Um, but you can still wonder if this is in the best interest of stability and peace. I mean, I don't know that you can say that there's no um, risk uh, for Sweden, given that Putin has said very recently that it was a legitimate military target. But I, I, I take your point. The whole point of this was a, uh, a post kind of Cold War, Cold War era defense treaty that was supposed to get smaller, not bigger, as normalization with Russia improved as opposed to devolved. And it does seem like a kind of escalation that is not going to lead anywhere good. Now, this is much less, I think, of an issue than the idea of including Ukraine in NATO. And that's um, where the eye has to be on the ball. Is this some indication of 
that's where this is going. Is Sweden's inclusion um, something on the path toward uh, Ukraine being included or a desire to con continually provoke Russia in these kinds of ways? If so, right, including Ukraine uh, without further negotiation with Russia would put us in an immediate place where we had to attack Russia, not just supply weapons, yeah. but supply, um, uh, commit ground forces. So if Ukraine wants to be part of NATO, wants the same protections of Sweden and other places, uh, uh, then we, we need some, we need negotiation with Russia such that they under, that they agree that the, the war is coming to an end and they're satisfied with, I guess, territorial gains and Ukraine is willing to accept that. And then we can offer a, a protection to the rest of the country if, with, if, if Russia is satisfied with the negotiations and Zelensky is satisfied with the negotiations. That's something that just needs to happen before any talk of the entire country joining NATO, which would put us in, that would actually put us in a war. Do, are people like contemplating that? Does, is the Biden administration aware of what step that would actually involve taking? The fact of the entire globe being forced to pay alms to one or another protection racket yeah. really does undermine the concept that we are all democracies that respect each other's borders. Um, we had a disagreement earlier in the show about uh, what I perceive to be the West's entitlement to decide the government of Palestine or whether or not it's allowed to have a government or function as an independent state. Um, we have covered any number of um, instances of U.S.-backed coups, color revolutions, political interference, wars America has started with other nations in the name of democracy across the globe. And it is really interesting to see in real time, I mean, the, the choice to join a defensive group does really undermine the concept that these borders have any inherent integrity of their own outside of having the backing of a nuclear power um, willing to enforce it on your behalf, and what the implications are for broader democracy in any kind of true sense, as opposed to simply um, violence, political violence. It, it really is, I think, a telling moment in human history, mm. to be honest. Sure. I mean— yeah, and, and I mean, the situation that, I mean, Russia did not, you know, recognize the boundaries of Ukraine, which are subject to some dispute, and boundaries have been withdrawn, have been drawn yeah, and redrawn a, a number of a, times. It's and, a chicken and the egg kind of a situation, right. you know, and this is, I mean, this is where we get into so much trouble where people like John Mearsheimer and Aaron Maté and Max Blumenthal, who've been talking about this, get into so much trouble, which is, which came first, the threat to include um, uh, Ukraine and NATO or the invasion to insensibly stop the U.S. from spreading its sphere of influence to include uh, eastern Ukraine, which is this Russian-speaking, right. Russian-sympathetic, at least until the war, part of Ukraine. Who is the first that's infringing on people's sense of national boundaries, ethnic belonging, and the like, when you have what transpired in the years leading up mm -hmm. to the 2022 invasion. Well, and then the, yes, and there's the issue of how egregious is each and every individual. Obviously, Russia's attempt to expand its sphere of influence by sending ground forces into a neighboring country and occupying it is 
a much is a extremely aggressive move, an unprecedented move. In fact, a lot of people didn't expect it to happen because yeah. it was so it was so galling and extreme. So that was an extreme escalation that I think you could say that e you know even if it was pushed to do that or there were moves on the other side that made it more likely that they were going to do that, they were some where they were not, not each and every one of them was not as significant as that, but they, they they did come first. So you get a it's like a chicken and egg problem, but but what what if the what if the chicken part of it is really more big and consequential, but the egg part came first, and you know how yeah. you sort these things out? Um, because the boundaries of countries do change over time, and then you get into well, who actually has the rights? The country, or I mean, to the extent we I think believe that countries have rights or have borders or can defend themselves, what we're really talking about is the people who comprise them should be able to defend themselves. But you know, what if you know, what if part of the country, a group of people, want to be part of a different country or want to be part of their own country? This does it reaches a a point where there's enough of those people, they're so overwhelming that they do change hands. Now of course we would like that we don't generally recognize that that's okay. Like if, if somebody wanted, if I wanted to start my own country within the United States, everybody would laugh at me, obviously. But there's succession movements. They happen, and, and sometimes they're successful. Yeah. So. We will have more rising right after this. The possibility of a second Donald Trump presidency has the intelligence community on edge. A new Politico report reveals that top officials are concerned a Trump administration would fundamentally overhaul spy agencies, leading to a, quote, politicization of intelligence gathering. But investigative journalist Matt Taibbi's recent reporting unveils that politicization of intelligence agencies might not be a new thing at all. Case in point, the Trump-Russia narrative. Now, in a new post on his Substack, Taibbi reveals that far from rema remaining politically neutral, the CIA actually concealed evidence that Russia favored Hillary Clinton in 2016, not the other way around. And in another post, Taibbi and colleagues Michael Schellenberger and Alex Gutentag expose how the government is concealing documents that incriminate the intelligence community for illegal spying and even election tampering. Here to dive further into this reporting is Matt Taibbi himself, one of our favorite guests on Rising. Thank you so much for coming back. Thanks for having me on, Robbie. I appreciate it. So reading your Substack uh, post about this, uh, actually it, it reminded me of, of the words Vladimir Putin said to Tucker Carlson in his recent interview where he actually said that he preferred um, Biden to Trump, which you know, had everyone's heads explode. Wait, wait, wait a minute! I was assured that Putin loves Trump, and they, you know, they just have this love affair together. And he must. So, and we, you know, we can disbelieve him. You can, you know, try to guess what's actually going on there. But you say in your post that far from you know Russian uh, intelligence officials, Russian influence operators thinking that uh, uh, loving and wanting Trump, they actually saw Hillary Clinton as a as a better as a as a more manageable character. Yeah, first of all, this this isn't exactly a new story. Um, this is based on an investigation that was conducted by the House Permanent Select uh, Committee on Intelligence in 2017 and 2018. People on the left and right who've covered Russiagate have basically known that this research was done back then and have gotten the general gist of this. So everyone from Aaron Mate to P Paul Sperry has reported on this. Uh, but what the what we got that was a little bit new were some direct quotes about things that were left out of this intelligence assessment. Things like 
the, the idea that Russia was comfortable with uh, Hillary Clinton, that they saw her as representing continuity, uh, that manageable and re representing continuity. Uh, meanwhile, Trump they saw as erratic, um, you know, unpredictable, and then there was a, there was a series of other things. Now that doesn't mean that they necessarily preferred Hillary Clinton. Absolutely, it just means that they suppressed intelligence indicating that they might have, and that's actually important. This is an interesting sort of chicken and the egg here. I mean, the, the fact that there existed some intelligence that that one could read as. Russia having a preference or at least being comfortable with Hillary Clinton as president, followed by a choice to do Russiagate and sh strongly argue that uh, uh, Donald Trump and later even figures like Bernie Sanders were Putin puppets, that Putin actually preferred them to be in charge as a way to dissuade American voters for supporting them. Do you see there as being any relationship between the two, or is it just a coincidence? Is, is, do we living in a world where they saw the tea leaves heading in one direction, reading one way, is it actually, let's use this kind of, um, the implications that are being raised here to our advantage by making the op opposite accusation? Well, I think that's a complicated question because this intelligence community assessment was conducted in basically in December of 2016, after the election and before the inauguration of Donald Trump. So the investigation of Donald Trump was already well underway. That had been the even the FBI probe started about six months before that. Uh, but I think you're right. I mean, w without this conclusion that the there was, uh, you know, quote unquote, an influence campaign to denigrate Hillary Clinton and specifically to help Donald Trump's electoral chances. You couldn't have had Russiagate, and you couldn't have had the other incident you referenced where they, they suddenly released documents suggesting that the Russians preferred Bernie Sanders. Uh, th the whole idea of that was based on this analysis, which, as we now are learning, was something that they never really had concrete information on, and very much like the WMD episode, they suppressed dissenting information that would have made this report look very different. Right, I think that's the key. What you're saying is the actual picture was mixed. They, and this makes sense. Did Russia actually evaluate the candidates and decided that they sort of had strengths and weaknesses to both of them? But what you heard and what the media constructed following the the intelligence and what intelligence people were t saying to the media was that. Um, Russia preferred Trump to such a degree that there is still to this day open speculation by people like Nancy Pelosi and Jen Psaki that Trump must be must be paid by or blackmailed by or something there with respect to Putin. So so powerful is the idea in the media that that Russia preferred Trump to that degree. Right, and you know I I talked to people who who did these kinds of analyses before uh, this episode, you worked in the intelligence community. And, and you know, the one, one of the things they said to me is, you're not going to get a document that says we prefer Donald Trump or, you know, we prefer X. <laughs> uh, that's just, it's, it's going to be very rare for that to happen. So you're always sort of making inferences and drawing conclusions, which is a legitimate intelligence activity. The, of course, you can do that. The issue here is that they did say this concretely, that, that Russia actually preferred Trump and that uh, the they wanted to denigrate Hillary Clinton. And what was that based on? Over time, it came out that this was based on just a very few sources. In fact, there was one particular human.
source that eventually was described as being instrumental in making this conclusion. And this was somebody that really only director John Brennan had direct access to. So it, it, a whole lot of eggs were placed in one basket, and we don't know exactly what was in that basket uh, to this day. And that's why this whole thing about reporting you know, on uh, with unnamed sources, you know, with intelligence officials telling you what they think, you always have to be skeptical because you never know what the evidence is based on. So the important real takeaway and implication here seems to be that the intelligence agencies are uh, putting their thumb on the scale for uh, Democrats. So they preferred Hillary Clinton, and the the framing of this is, is, you know, is the Donald Trump, a potential Donald Trump second term, going to set the intelligence agencies on edge? But I want to ask you, do they really need to be worried, given uh, Donald Trump's not a lack of follow through on really doing anything to reform the intelligence agencies during his first term. Is there any reason to believe that the intelligence agencies would really be threatened meaningfully by Donald Trump returning to, to office? I mean, I haven't done this story yet, but I, I think that there's significant reason to believe that the Trump, if, if there was an, a second Trump administration, that they would uh, take much more seriously the idea that they need to clean house and the intelligence services and prevent uh, certain things from happening a second time around. Now, whether they have the competence to bring that off is, is, a, is another question. Uh, but this story is, is significant because, uh, you know, if it, if it is indeed true that they cooked this intelligence and that that story was not right from the beginning, we're, we're talking about almost eight years of news stories and propaganda that were based on a faulty premise. And that's pretty significant, especially since they keep reviving the same idea. And they just, they just did it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you know, they're, they're saying again that there's going to be an interference in the 2024 campaign. Uh, we, I think it's time to maybe put these stories to rest until they show actual proof. Yeah, and perhaps put to rest the idea that these agencies or the people who staff them are, are not politicized and are only going to be politicized in the event that Donald Trump makes them so. I mean, these are, these were government employees helping to um, tip the scales on political questions, policy questions. The idea that it's not politicized is, is, is laughable, but I, I suppose there are still people in the media who are you know, pursuing that kind, of, that kind of idea or pushing that kind of idea, I should say. Yeah, and it's amazing that we haven't learned our lesson. I mean, the, the WMD episode, which was similar but not exactly the same as this, uh, remember, in 2002, they put out what's called the National Intelligence Estimate, which is a pretty big formal document that does actually include all of the intelligence agencies. Back then, it was 16. It would be 17 now. Uh, the thing they put out in 2000. 16 and 2017 was called an intelligence community assessment that only had three agencies in it uh, involved it was a hand-picked team and within that team they actually suppressed some opinions 
So they kept out some some agencies that didn't think that this was true, like the State Department and the Defense Intelligence Agency. Those they just weren't involved in the analysis. In the in the WMD episode, the dissent was there, but it was classified until like 2015. Here they just kept it out entirely. So we should have learned our lesson from the WMD episode that they can manipulate these things to come up with any kind of conclusion that they want, as long as they're controlling when the information is released. And that's the, the same here. I mean, we're learning about it eight years later, but it's way too late to affect public opinion on it. Yeah, that analogy between the WMD uh, intelligence and the Steele dossier and the, and the Russia phobia is really powerful. And I encourage people to go and read the article in full over at your Substack. Thank you so much for joining us today, Matt. Thanks so much, Brianna. Take care. District Attorney Fonnie Willis's alleged lover, Nathan Wade, has found himself once again in the crosshairs as his ex-law partner, Terrence Bradley, will have to testify on what he knows about the special prosecutor's relationship with Willis. Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee made the call on Monday, and Bradley could be compelled to testify as early as Tuesday. Per the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Bradley's testimony could be damning for Willis and Wade. McAfee has already heard testimony from a former friend and employee of Willis who said the romance began long before Willis hired Wade. Defense attorneys have suggested Bradley can also testify that Willis and Wade were romantically involved before she hired him. Bradley had attempted to use attorney-client privilege to shield himself from testifying further, but the judge has denied that excuse. Defense lawyers representing Trump affiliate Mike Roman in the election interference case are attempting to discredit Willis and her office over the DA's apparent mistruths regarding her relationship with Wade. Trump's attorneys are now calling into question cell phone data that could clarify the timeline of when their relationship started. Information they maintain could be used in their quest to disqualify Willis and her team. Per the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, court records show Willis and Nathan Wade called each other more than 2,000 times and texted nearly 10,000 times in an 11-month period in 2001. So not... 21. 2021. So not just that, but that... Uh, Several records show that Wade was at Willis's apartment 35 times from April 1st to November 30th, 2021, including twice late at night. They say they only met for professional reasons, but that would put their the timeline of them starting to have more intimate relationship with each other earlier than she has claimed. She says that they didn't start a relationship until after he was hired. Remember, there's this friend of hers who has testified that the relationship started earlier than they let on. Um, it seems to be that there is mounting evidence that they were, in fact, already a couple dating, amorously involved, when she chose him to be the special prosecutor here, despite his lack of relevant experience. So uh, they have a huge problem on their hands that uh, this ex-law... So this ex-law partner doesn't want to testify and tried to argue this was attorney-client privilege, but that's not holding water, so he's going to have to testify about his knowledge as to when the relationship actually began. This seems all very bad. Again, not really for the Trump case, but for the involvement in particular of these two individuals who seem to have, that there's considerable evidence at this point that they misstated the nature of their relationship, that it is perfectly um, legitimate to question whether he was picked because he was in a relationship with her, even without getting into the kickback nature of it, that he paid for trips and she says she paid him back in cash. And now we've actually had some corroboration that she does tend to carry a 
whole giant purse full of cash she paid off at this uh, this winery they went to. She paid a couple hundred dollars worth in cash. So maybe she did end up paying back the money. But frankly, his appointment in the first place is is suspect if they were already dating, given his lack of relevant expertise. Yeah, and remember the game here for the Trump lawyers is delay, delay, delay. The issue is it's not really relevant whether or not she is disqualified. Um, McAfee said at the at the start of this that the bar for disqualifying an attorney is pretty high. But regardless, this pushes the yeah. date, uh, the trial date, uh, back and creates delays that are as good as a disqualification for the whole case. If it happens after the election day, then it's largely a, a moot point in the eyes of Democrats. We're really hoping that a conviction might turn the sure. tide of the election. I mean, it won't be a moot place. point in terms of the proceedings because the Georgia... Um, uh, accusations, unlike other uh, trials Trump is involved in, can, he can't pardon his way out of because it's a state issue. But I absolutely take your point that they want it before the election day. They hope that it will have some um, negative impact on Trump's re-election capabilities. Um, of course, that is actually just entirely speculative. Um, it, it could make him more popular. It could make him more popular, certainly among Republicans. Now, there are some people when polled who say that it would make them less likely to vote for Trump if he were convicted of right. this or any of the other things before the election. Um, th those polls seem to show to me a lot of those people doubting that he will be convicted. So I don't know if it's they're considering something they don't actually expect to happen. And then if it did happen, how they would feel their, about it. Yeah. I think it, I will say, I, I find it plausible, possible that it would hurt his reelection if he were convicted of something beforehand. I frankly think that could be the case and could also not be the case. I, I, I don't I'm know skeptical. that it will change things that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it might make Republicans want to vote for him even, maybe, maybe they're already at the limit, so it doesn't matter. So you just have to rally the Dems or something, but I don't know, man. Yeah, it, that's, a, that's a tough one. Well, look, meanwhile, former President Trump on Monday appealed a judge's decision ordering him to pay more than $450 million in the New York Attorney General's sprawling civil fraud case against his business empire. With Trump's notice of appeal formally filed, the case will head to the First Judicial Department Appellate Division, where the former president will seek to get the nine-figure fine and the other penalties tossed. Uh, so this, the New York, um, uh, the New York's uh, New York Magazine, uh, sorry, New York Times' podcast, The Daily, did an interesting uh, review on this earlier this week, pointing out that this is not a uh, uh, kind of a generalized punitive fi fine amount found by a, jur a jury, but that this is a calculation of the amount that Donald Trump constructively defrauded the banks by over at overstating his property's value. So. It is a big, it's a big number, but it's not one that you can kind of uh, blame a kind of a liberal jury pool or something like that for. This is a calculation based on what the banks basically would have made if he had accurately estimated his own value. Right. I mean, again, according it's, to the- It's a lower value than what the uh, prosecution had come up with. It's uh, what the court, yeah. the court ran the numbers themselves and found a slightly no, a lower amount. Right. Again, it's, it's something the government came up with. It's not something the, the, the bank did not say they felt defrauded by it. So that's It's what my, the court actually came right, up with. So the court decided, but the people he the, allegedly, the, the organizations he allegedly defrauded don't feel defrauded and took no action and would be open to working with him again. But it does, you know, it is a, it is a ding to Trump. Um, 
he uh, w one imagines at some point he's going to have trouble paying for all of his various fines and court actions and also running for re-election. Again, this comes down to strategy. Do you want your candidate, your standard bearer, to be someone who's is so whose time, money, and attention are so consumed by non-campaign related matters? But if Trump is going to be the nominee, so I guess that question is moot. I, I think it will hurt his ability to campaign, that he owes great amounts of money, and that he has to keep going back to court to haggle it out. Every, from my mind, every time he's in court, rather than in front of a cheering crowd in Ohio or Pennsylvania or Michigan, is a missed opportunity. But yeah, and, and it's important to note that his stated net worth is not very much higher than the combined judgments in this case in the Eugene Carroll case, about half a million dollars, half a billion dollars rather. So he has already started to and has for some time campaigned on the idea that he is being hit with these, un, in his mind, unfair uh, judgments. And the question is whether or not his voters are going to be willing to subsidize his personal debts right. in furtherance of getting him into office. And certainly, I'm sure many will. They see him as being unfairly uh, targeted in these cases, and they, they want to help him. But it puts him in the hole, fundraising-wise, as compared to several other candidates, if he's basically fundraising to, to get his judgments, his civil judgments paid, and trying to raise millions and millions of dollars to run a presidential campaign. Yeah, it's going to have a negative effect on his ability to campaign, and I think we're going to see that in the coming weeks and months. More Rising right after this. self-immolation of active duty Air Force member Aaron Bushnell in protest of the war in Gaza has created controversy online from left and right. Now Rising Friday's host Amber Duke zeroed in on this posting on X on Monday. The bulk of the online left is rejecting the idea that an Air Force veteran who self-immolated for Palestine was mentally ill and are actually heralding him as a courageous hero. Literal death cult. Meanwhile, another user on X said their blood was boiling after MSNBC's Andrea Mitchell reported Bushnell was protesting the Israel-Hamas war and flashed the suicide hotline during the news segment, suggesting that Bushnell's protest could be chalked up to mental illness. An anonymous group of self-identified Biden-Harris staffers mourned the death of Bushnell, writing, two U.S. citizens have self-immolated over the U.S.-backed Israeli genocide in Gaza. The group urged President Biden to forcefully support a permanent ceasefire. Now, this isn't all left versus right on this issue. Commentator Candace Owens tweeted, Rest in peace, Aaron Bushnell. Thank you for years of service to the United States of America. May your family find peace in this tragedy. Thank you to all the men and women that currently or have ever, ever served this country. The burdens you carry are too often overlooked. Perhaps the most interesting response came from Hamas, wrote it, writing in a statement celebrating Bushnell and condemning the Biden administration. Hamas wrote, quote, we express our deepest condolences and our full solidarity with the family and friends of the American pilot Aaron Bushnell, whose name has been immortalized as a defender of human values and the oppression of the Palestinian people who are suffering because of the American administration and its unjust policies. And one other element of the controversy surrounding this in the last day or so is the media coverage itself. We touched on it with the uh, Andrea, Andrea Mitchell uh, segment, but notably in the immediate aftermath of Aaron Bushnell's death, coverage of it managed to exclude the fact, the reason why he was protesting, the words he said as he live streamed walking up to letting himself, uh, lighting himself on fire. 
um, and the fact that it was done in protest of the war, the siege on Gaza, and that he was f shouting free Palestine until he could shout no more. The New York Times, New York Times is, uh, framed it as, a man set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, and the police said the man was taken to a hospital with life-threatening injuries. And people pointed out that the New York Times is able to cover self-immolation stories, building the politics into the coverage, and they did so uh, when they were covering a, a story uh, about a Russian journalist who did so pro protesting the Russian government, writing, in contrast, Russian journalist sets herself on fire and dies, blaming government, the self-immolation by the journalist Irina Slavina, 47, a longtime Kremlin critic, came a day after the authorities in her hometown of Ninzi Govrod had searched her apartment. So there really does seem to be some asymmetry here, an almost purposeful exclusion of the politics underlying um, Bushnell's actions. Sure, and I would say that the media needs to be should be transparent and should accurately report the circumstances of what happened. Um, just as we search for um, manifestos and reasons in cases of mass shootings or things like that, the, the public, the readers demand greater contextualizations for actions taken. And what can we do but demand that the media be truthful about that? So I, I certainly think they should explain what his last words were, what his rationalization was for his actions. Um, all that said, and you may not like what I have to say about this, I don't, I feel no, I, I, I'm just tremendous, I have sorrow for this course of action. Um, suicide is a horrible thing for, not just obviously for the person who died under agonizing circumstances, that, that should not be left out of this as one of the worst ways you can die, and then to have friends and family members have to live with the grief of that. Um, I, I am not going to pass moral judgment on the action, but I find it um, horrible to contemplate and just very sad, and I would not use words like courageous or important. I, I wouldn't use negative words about it either. It's just a terrible thing to happen, not something to be encouraged whatsoever, in my view, um, not a constructive form of protest, and one that is so harmful and so scarring for people for family members in the, in the same way that suicide is under circumstances of mental illness. I'm not going to make the claim this is mental illness because I don't know anything about this person's circumstances and their stated rationalizations were perfectly ideological and political, so I accept that that's the case, but I, 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 would, not, I would not say good. I would not cheer for it. Well, it's demonstrably an effective form of protest because because he live streamed it. Remember, there was another one of these that got completely erased from the media so much so that we don't even know that person's name. It happened in December. But there was a segment um, that we're unable to play from mainstream cable liberal news that has been so avoidant of talking about the humanitarian crisis in this way that has been more compassionate because of the framing around Aaron Bushnell than any that has happened so far. So I think the real tragedy is that it takes a young 25-year-old U.S. airman lighting himself on fire and dying in front of an Israeli, uh, uh, Israeli embassy to get that level of coverage, despite the fact that there is an enormous public appetite to talk about what many people are perceiving is the worst humanitarian crisis they've ever witnessed. It's being live-streamed on their social media apps 24 hours a day, but there's a very different set of imagery that's happening on the mainstream news. And but for an instance like this, certainly 
they would not have been talking about it, and even we are now being compelled to have this conversation. And, and particularly, I want to note that because Bushnell was an, an Air Force officer, um, there is a kind of a narrative that's out there that's, that says, um, you know, this is, this is suicide, this is fruitless. I saw someone pushing back and saying, well, so many officers go and fight and die for their country, and they say that they're dying for what they believe in. Aaron Bushnell, arguably, is doing that in the most concrete and pure essence. He's literally dying for what he believes in, which is not bombing uh, Palestinian civilians, but bringing attention to the extent to which America is complicit in the deaths of 300, uh, of 30,000 Palestinians, most of whom are women and children. Remember, uh, as The Intercept reported back in January, but the Biden administration deployed an Air Force team to Israel to assist with targets, uh, to, to assist with targeting um, uh, to Gaza. He was an Air Force member who potentially was reacting to his or his colleagues being sent to help implement this actual war. And instead of participating in that, instead of being complicit in that, he chose instead to give his life not to the task of killing others, but to try to stop it. And whatever judgment you make of that, it certainly is a kind of living one's ideals that I, fr I frankly don't think that you can wave away. I mean, then he could have burned his uniform. He could have declined to go. There are about a thousand actions you can take that don't have the scarring, searing effect on your friends and family members of setting yourself on fire. So, you know, that's my perspective. I appreciate yours. There's been some really interesting um, uh, reporting about how uh, Aaron Bushnell lived his life and his values. Apparently, he'd recently moved to Akron, Ohio, where he. Uh, participated in public service, and the community members uh, who served with him there uh, described him as dependable and persistent in the mutual aid work he did in a city that was still new to him. That was at a food distribution center uh, that he worked at. And, and just to, to close off, this is in the words of, of Caitlin Johnson, who a, a journalist who opined on the CNN segment about uh, Aaron Bushnell, whose last words were read on, on CNN. Um, she said he did it. Aaron Bushnell forced this to happen. He did something so jarring and impactful that the mass media would be forced to report the raw facts about it if they wanted to avoid internal conflicts like CNN and The New York Times have been experiencing in recent weeks. He left them no choice, and I think it's worth asking whether simply burning his uniform in front of the embassy would have forced that outcome. No. Ask his parents about that. Ask his friends. Ask the people he was behind. It's a horrible thing, and I did read her comments. I found them. Very reprehensible, but tell us what you think about this issue. We'll have more rising right after. In a recent rare interview, President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, opened up about his sobriety, saying it's imperative to not only his life that he stay sober, but that it is essential to ensure former President Donald Trump does not return to the Oval Office. Hunter told Axios, quote, most importantly, you have to believe that you're worth the work or you'll never be able to get sober. But I often do think of the profound consequences of failure here. I have always been in awe of people who have stayed clean and sober through tragedies and obstacles few people ever face. They are my heroes, my inspiration. I have something much bigger than ever, than, uh, than even myself at stake. We are in the middle of a fight for the future of democracy. In other news, the SAG-AFTRA union has confirmed that several boxes containing files belonging to former CBS senior investigative correspondent Catherine Herridge were returned to her. CBS staffers reported that 
Heritage's files, computers, and records were seized after her dismissal from the company. A new piece from The Hill indicates that Heritage, quote, was pursuing stories that were unwelcomed by the Biden White House and many Democratic powerhouses. The piece claimed that CBS, quote, took the unusual step of seizing her files, computers, and records, including information on privileged sources. A CBS spokesperson said in a statement, Catherine's personal belongings were delivered to her home one week ago, and we are prepared to pack up the rest of her files immediately on her behalf, with her representative present as she requested. We have respected her request to not go through the files and out of our concern for confidential sources. The office she occupied has remained secure since her departure. All right. So the Hunter Biden story, I, I do feel like if he really believes in protecting his father's political interests and that the weight of the country depends on it, that's a very heavy shoulder for someone battling sobriety to bear. And also, I'm not sure talking about it in this way to the press is actually in furtherance of that goal. Yeah, I mean, he's completely right, though. Uh, the, the observation is correct. If he does think his father getting reelected is important for the country, I mean, he, sh he probably thinks it's a good thing to happen anyway because it's his dad, even if the stakes weren't as extreme as many Democrats are making them out to be. Um, it is, in fact, true that his that if he falls off the wagon, if, if there's more embarrassing stories about him involving substance abuse, et cetera, that it it does fairly or unfairly hurt his father's re-election campaign. That's just, like, know, true. man. It does seem to me that the issue with Hunter Biden is whether or not there was some pay-to-play scheme between him and his father and various unsavory characters in Russia or Ukraine. Not that he has struggled with substance abuse. I mean, there have been Bushes that su suffered from substance abuse. This is not a new thing for a presidential family member to ha have had an issue, and, and as much Malia as I got an think, A minus on her homework assignment <laughs> once too. I mean, those girls had to keep their noses extremely clean. No, and, and it's unfair. And the burden on, frankly, the, on famous people's presidents' yeah. children is is way too high. Even although Hunter Biden's a, problems are in their own category, I think. But sure, but I, I, as much as I do think that sometimes Democrats substitute in his personal struggles when they're trying to defend him and describe what Republicans are saying about him as unfair, most of the criticism does seem to have fallen on much more substantive grounds than the fact that he is just a guy who's been struggling with some things. I mean, with some exceptions. Obviously, you had Marjorie Taylor Greene um, showing images yeah. uh, from the laptop in Congress that didn't seem germane to anything other than her just being salacious. But for, for the most part, this does seem to be a little bit of a distraction. It's not that Biden is going to lose if he fall, if Hunter falls off the wagon. It's that Biden will lose if it's proven that he was using his father to earn money from foreign actors with his father's knowledge and with kickbacks to his father. Yes, I agree with that. Although... He could make the, those accusations seem more credible in people's eyes if he falls off the wagon again. Engaging in substance abuse causes you to do all sorts of other risky things. Remember, there was a, a, dis, a wrongly discarded gun because of this. I mean, it, it could, if he engages in further 
tax, financial, gun-related, drug-related things that, again, do I think they're a big deal? Or, you know, I, I think you should be able to Or are use... they Biden's fault? Uh, Not does that it put it's Biden a in a position deal. where he has to get Hunter Biden off the hook for something? Sure, yes. That's part of the whole narrative that, that right. these things weren't investigated properly. So it does, for better or worse, get Biden in, in more trouble, because it is a little bit more complicated, even though I agree with you that it's not really Biden's fault if you ha or anyone's fault if you have a adult, a, a, son. adult son suffering from substance abuse, but it could put Biden in additional awkward positions as it clearly already has yeah. um, with regard to the prosecution and all of that. What do you make of this Catherine, uh, Catherine Heritage story? Oh yeah, this has really been bubbling up on social media. I've been seeing a lot of people discussing this. Um, uh, Michael Schellenberger has been talking about it um, and a lot of others. So Catherine Heritage was this very well-respected kind of national security reporter, general interest reporter, who worked at Fox and left Fox for CBS and then was fired in this recently in these mass layoffs. You know, she's one of 800 people fired. So you could say, I'm sure she commands an impressive salary and they let a whole lot of people go and they had to have some big fish in there too to make it economically viable. Layoffs are happening all over the media, very t bad time for the industry, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. However, she was doing stories that were very critical of the Biden administration and people wonder whether, um, you know, in this whole kind of everybody, people in the media afraid to help be helping to reelect Donald Trump if there's something going on there. And then they kept these, and she is being, right now she is in a, a court battle for work she did at Fox before she came to CBS, where the, it's, it's one of those cases where the judge is trying to compel her to give up her source and she's refusing. Fox is still paying her legal bills. She, she could go to jail for doing the work of journalism, for refusing to give up a source. So this did um, really rub people the wrong way that CBS was keeping her files, her computers, where she probably has information about confidential sources. And so there was a lot of, of, of criticism from all directions. Uh, the SAG-AFRA union getting involved, saying this is totally contrary to journalistic practice. This endangers her, it endangers her sources. So glad to see CBS do the right thing and give her back these files. They say they did not look through them. I guess we gotta trust that, hope that was the case. Right, but this is a pretty serious implication here, this argument that at the time that she was fired, she was, quote, pursuing stories that were unwelcomed by the Biden White House and many Democratic powerhouses. Yes. You know, if it is true, I mean, if it is true that not yeah, just and, the firing Yeah, and the if was, is a big if there. It's a big if. But that the firing was related to her reporting and that the this delay in returning her documents was to disrupt her ability to report by implicating some of her confidential sources, that that is that is huge. So I can understand why CBS would be very quick to want to put a bow on this and say, here's your stuff, I promise I didn't do anything. Um, but I'd be very interested to keep watching what Heritage reports out next, yes. given that she was apparently, reportedly, working on some pretty sensitive stuff. Yes, absolutely. We will be paying attention to that quite closely, and we'll have more rising right after this. What promises to be one of the most consequential hearings this term, the Supreme Court is currently mulling two cases with major repercussions for social media platforms. The cases involve a pair of laws from Florida and Texas that bar social media platforms from banning users based on their political views, even if users supposedly violate platform policies. The outcome could have big implications for free speech online and curb companies' ability to enforce their own rules. 
Platforms like Facebook and YouTube say both laws infringe upon the company's free speech rights by restricting their ability to choose what content they wish to publish on their platforms. However, conservatives argue that these bills are necessary to protect the free speech rights of right-leaning individuals online. These laws were, in fact, born in 2021 after Twitter, Facebook, and others banned former President Donald Trump following backlash from some conservatives who maintained that the social media companies were unfairly instituting policies that specifically targeted conservative figures while not practicing similar persecution of other ideological users. Now, the case marks the first time the court will really weigh in on the First Amendment rights of social media platforms. Now, of note, former President Donald Trump has expressed his support of the lawsuit, while the Biden administration filed an amicus brief on behalf of the social media platforms. Following arguments, the justices appeared skeptical about the constitutionality of the laws and how they might impact other sites like Uber without violating the First Amendment. Justice Elena Kagan pressed Florida Solicitor General Henry Whitaker over the First Amendment merits of the case, asking how the law wasn't, quote, a classic First Amendment violation. Justice Clarence Thomas concurred, asking for, quote, one example of a case in which we said that the First Amendment protects the right to censor. Justices Amy Coney Barrett and, Bar and Brett Kavanaugh seem to side more with Florida. According to some reports, some of the nine justices are considering sending the cases back down to lower courts. Yes, so this is a very important um, set of cases involving these state laws that restrict the ability of social media companies to remove users for political speech, specifically tied to what happened to Donald Trump. Um, now, look, the issue is I... I think censorship is bad. I think a lot of the things social media uh, companies have done, a lot of their policies have been not good. They have wrongly removed users. They have suppressed content related to COVID and other subjects. Now, we've subsequently learned a lot of that was actually not freely chosen by the companies, but was in fact forced on them by the government. That's a whole different Supreme Court case that's going to be happening in the coming weeks that I'm looking forward to. But in this case, fundamentally, look, if you, if you believe in the First Amendment and you believe in free speech, I mean, it is the case that Facebook, however big and powerful it might be, is a is not is not the government. It is a private actor, and it can set policies on what rules you're supposed to follow, and it can remove users. And the, this was an example of the states trying to trying to take that power away from the platforms in ways that I think obviously do themselves violate the First Amendment, which was kind of what was coming up in the oral arguments. Now, it gets more complicated that, than that because there's these specific laws that apply to social media companies, Section 230, which shields them from some liability. And I know many conservatives are arguing because they have this special protection from being sued that other publishers don't have, it should be different. But then the other people will say, OK, but that's just not the way the law is written. If you want to change this, you could change the law. The law doesn't have to. It's not actually the First Amendment, Section 230. But no one has changed it. So the law is, does give them this protection while still allowing them to make editorial decisions. So the arguments were very interesting. And I'm not totally sure which way the case is going to go. I suspect they will strike down the laws, because at the heart of it, the, the government can't tell a private actor what speech policies it should have is pretty ironclad. Yeah, it does feel as though the problem here is the problem that these social media companies keep butting up against, which is that they're somewhere between a publisher and a common carrier. 
I would, if you think about them as common carriers and you ask yourself the question, should AT&T be allowed to restrict access to, uh, you know, your, your weird uncle because his political views are unsavory, obviously that feels wrong. But the difference between your weird uncle making a, a private phone call to someone else and broadcasting content on a platform that has this relationship very publicly with that content does feel a little bit different. And that's not me making a judgment on where I think this should go, but just an observation that that liminal space between being a publisher, a la the New York Times, let's say, mm -hmm. who we completely appreciate has the right to run what it wants to run and right. make editorial decisions, and the kind of more private end-to-end -end facilitation that these kind of um, common carriers, whether it's a telephone company or a railroad, servicing right. individuals in their personal lives as opposed to this broadcast function, it seems to be really at the heart of why these decisions are difficult and why you find people who are once on one side of this argument, let's say in the famous um, gay cake case where two religious bakers d did not want to make a wedding cake for a gay couple and were not forced to do so by the courts. The conservatives are now on the opposite side of this, saying the proverbial cake maker in this instance is the Facebook, right. who should be forced to host whatever new, whatever views are put on the site. In this right. case, maybe Donald Trump or whomever. Right, that's why, yeah, my position is the cake baker absolutely should not have to make that cake. And but also and for exactly similar reasons, I don't think at the end of the day Facebook is should be forced to carry any one entity's content. And if and the comparison to the phone company or the railroad, I think it, it it's easier to see why these things are why Facebook versus AT and T is distinct when you actually consider the revenue models. Like the 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 the, uh, the phone company, you're a subscriber. You just pay for the service. The the railroad company, you, you buy a ticket. You don't pay to use Facebook. Facebook's business model is creating a curated advertising experience for is is you know have, exercising some control over what is on the platform so that it makes money because it makes money through ads. Yeah. So then to say like you're, it's a free service to you, you're not being you're not you would maybe have some rights if you were handing them over money and then signing some agreement at, like that would make more logical sense. But it's a it's a free service because yeah. what it sells is the easier experience. So to say that this just like the New York Times can't craft what its product is in order to make it more appealing from advertisers to revenue. You know, if the government tried to say, we want this much of this perspective on the front pages of the New York Times, we would all recognize how obviously a violation of the First yeah. Amendment that is. The Facebook case is, I, th I mean, this is what's being decided and litigated, but I would say the Facebook case is more akin to that. I think that's right. I also think that the implications of this could be potentially very dire. It wasn't nothing that Trump got banned. And, no. and for me, the problem here is at least one of these uh, state rules, I forget which, uh, preclude, would preclude you from banning someone even for violations of the policies. Now, my feeling, and we've had this conversation with respect to Twitter and how Elon Musk was planning to and did or did not actually change Twitter, the issue was a, a, a perceived inconsistency in how the Twitter rules were applied. I don't like, I don't like that. I think that there is some value mm -hmm. in not allowing the CEOs of various websites to exert their own political will, but to apply in a fair-handed way policies that seem well-tailored to keeping the site a place where advertisers want to be. No pornography, no incitement of violence, those kinds of things. But I do have concerns about 
this could go against the left, this could go against the right, this could go against the people and in, in favor of the elites. What happens if these social media sites that have been so instrumental to movement efforts in, in recent history, with mm -hmm. all the hashtag movements and the like, are do have carte blanche to shut down broad swaths of political discourse at the drop of a hat, and there's absolutely no pushback. In a world where we know there's not the same ability to simply go to a different bakery. Mm -hmm. These websites are powerful and they have value in part because they are centralized. There is only one and you know all your friends are going to be there. They behave as public forums in a way that is very different than any given bakery or, or individual provider. And so I do, you know, I, I, I do wonder if there's some kind of balance mm -hmm. or middle ground or protections that could be put into place that falls short of what these laws are recommending. But I don't think this broader issue of who is going to protect the rights of individuals and speech bases, which are technically private and where they do, right. don't really have any rights, what's going to happen? And again, you, you could do that. Like Section 230, which is the law that protects them from this liability. Yeah could be restructured to say, well, they get it if they also are transparent about algorithm. Like, it, it could be not given so carte blanche. That would require, but the Supreme Court just has to interpret it the way it is. And the way it is currently written is very clear that it extends this protection no matter what other moderation decisions they make. Yeah. So, you know, that, again, that's going to be a failing of Congress. I'm also worried in these laws, how it how it describes what constitutes a political belief, yeah. what even counts as a social media platform is not as clear. I can't remember if it's Texas or Florida. One of them is more clear on it's. We're talking about Facebook and Twitter, not just a website. But the other one's not as clear on that. And then is you know is ISIS a political view? <laughs> is, uh, is we, is we were just at, at a hearing a couple yeah. weeks ago where everyone was screaming at Mark Zuckerberg for not taking down more abusive content, not not sh uh, protecting kids from from bad actors and con men and and you know people were who were trying to encourage you to commit suicide. Um, do we really want you know five conversations ago it was the platforms aren't exercising enough control to take down bad actors and people who think they're violating their policies, and now you're saying they're doing it too much, which is the position that I do find myself sometimes sympathetic, frankly, to the people trying to run these companies because they're just being screamed at yeah. by, by political actors for totally contradictory reasons. Yeah, and look, um, um, two months ago, Congress passed a resolution saying that it was de facto anti-Semitism to say free Palestine, to say from the river to the sea. What does that mean for the left looking down the barrel of these laws? They understand that these are brought by conservative governments in the mm -hmm. interest of kind of protecting yeah. Trump-adjacent politics. But we have seen the liberals who run places like Atlanta criminalize the protest movements around Cop City. We have seen a bipartisan Congress censor uh, Rashida Tlaib for saying from the river to the sea and, st and calling that a, hate a hateful language almost by law. Yeah. Uh, so do we really want to go down that path? I don't know. I, I, somewhat, the, the problem is that people are defining what is and isn't hate speech and what is and is not allowable regardless in yeah. both directions all over the place on the federal government level and now at, this is an attempt on the state government now, level. You're, you're very right to bring that up because while these specific bills have a, have a were brought by uh, were con constructed by conservatives, there is a support from some, not, not even just liberals, some on the left, I, I think Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar have all also said they want to get rid of Section 230 um, for for this for 
similar-ish kind of because of hate speech and because of the danger and 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 so you, he doesn't want to reward those platforms for having platformed any of these people in the past and like the like the the idea would be to construct some kind of panel that determines whether your website is like is non-hateful enough to get these kinds of protections. That just seems like a like a really a very bad slope. idea to go down that route. That does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, we will be back. Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, please check us out wherever you can find podcasts. And we will be back tomorrow. Take care. Bye.